Good morning, church. It is good to see you out from the terrible storm that we're facing. Glad you are here. Uh, If you are uh, new with us or just joining us today, you should know that uh, we have been preaching through the Sermon on the Mount, which you can find beginning in Matthew chapter 5. So if you got a Bible, you're going to want to find Matthew chapter 5. It's the first book of your New Testament. And the thing, I don't know if you've been noticing as we've been working our way through Jesus' famous sermon is that as Jesus preaches this, it's almost as if he expects us to apply it. It's almost as if the word of God is meant to change our daily lives. Amazing concept, isn't it? That that we would actually not just uh, hear the word, not just read the word, but that it would get into our hearts and work its way out through our lives. That's God's plan for his word. And Honestly, as you go through the Sermon on the Mount, you are going to find incredibly, incredibly practical stuff. It's kind of astonishing to me as a preacher when I think about the fact that this is Jesus' first big public sermon, at least the first one we know of. And, and I always think when I get invited to uh, preach at a conference or, or preach at a different church or I'm in a different country and I'm d- and doing ministry, um, I always try to do my first couple of messages, sort of get to know you kinds of things, the kind of thing that everybody's gonna say, oh yeah, that was good, that was helpful, uh, feathers don't get too ruffled and that sort of stuff. But Jesus does not take that approach. He just goes straight for our hearts right at the beginning and goes, I am serious about your life being changed. And he's gonna talk to us, and we've seen this already, he's gonna talk to us about issues that we don't even talk to each other about. Issues that are hard for us to face. Issues that we don't want to get into. And Jesus just opens it up in a crowd of thousands and says, okay, we're going to talk about this uncomfortable issue. And so this morning, we're dealing with a topic that has been a source of tremendous pain for countless people. Jesus is going to talk to us about a specific area of sin. Um, that, that has resulted in broken families. It has resulted in wounded hearts. It has caused tremendous damage to children. It has negatively affected most of us, actually, in one way or another, either directly or indirectly. And I just want to um, share my heart with you a little bit as your pastor and say that... Um, I want this message to be a source of healing to those of us who have been negatively impacted by this area of sin, whether it's been our own sin or someone else's sin that has impacted our lives. I'm I'm preaching this message today with with a tremendous amount of compassion and empathy and concern because I know that a lot of us have scar tissue related to the topic that Jesus is gonna bring up. And I also want it to be a source of strong warning to us because it is such a dangerous area, because it does cause so much trouble. For those who have uh, not ever been directly involved with this sin, I want this to be a, a red flag warning that says, hey, stay away from this. This is dangerous. This is 
trouble. And, and whether you're a person who has been directly affected by this or you're a person who's been indirectly affected by this, either way, my prayer is that today's message would be an invitation to grace for you. Because God wants to heal our lives. He wants to redirect us when we're headed off a cliff. He wants to help us get through the hard things in life. And so I want to say that up front. And the, another thing I need to say up front is I, I just need to warn you parents this morning that this morning's topic is of a rather adult nature. So if you're watching online and your kids are next to you on the couch, this might not be a bad time to get them involved in something in the other room. Um, we've already dismissed the kids here on campus. Um, and that's a good thing because uh, this is not going to be a message that is in the least bit profane. Jesus addresses it in a way that is not in the least bit profane, but it is a PG-13 topic. Um, and, and some of you are like leaning forward in your seats now. You're like, okay, PG-13 at church. This is gonna be something great. Um, now that I have your attention, let's dive into God's word. And we're not gonna start in Matthew 5. I want us to start in 2 Timothy so take your New Testament, you're going to go about halfway through the New Testament, two-thirds of the way through. You start finding these letters of Paul, you'll find 1 Timothy, and then you'll find 2 Timothy. If you get to the big book of Hebrews, you went too far. But I want you to go to 2 Timothy. By the way, this, while you're turning to this, is a great opportunity for a cheap plug. Uh, our men's Bible study meets on Saturday mornings right here on campus at 8 a.m., and we are studying verse by verse through 2 Timothy, and we are literally right on this verse right now that we're gonna look at today. Uh, it's in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and I wanna read to you verse 16. It says this, all scripture, that is all of the Bible, is inspired or breathed out by God. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. In other words, God has given us his word, not as something to bang us over the head with. He's not given us his word so that we can be equipped to judge other people. He says he's given us his word, breathed it right out of his own mouth so that we can be taught, we can be reproved, we can be corrected, and we can be trained in righteousness so that we will be adequate for every good work. In other words, what I'm telling you is the truth of scripture is good for you. And every now and then, I have to start by reminding us of that because we get into these verses where God is going to say, hey, I want you to stop doing this thing that you really like to do. Or hey, I want you to stay away from this issue that really draws you in. And I want you to know that when God gives us his word, he gives us his word to help us. He's trying to make it possible for us to live a life that thrives instead of just survives. And so in 2 Timothy 3, it tells us his word is given to us for those purposes. And as we get into it today, I trust that he's gonna take his word and he's going to do a healing work in some of our hearts. And I also trust that he's gonna take his word and he's gonna do a correcting work in some of our hearts. But whatever he may need to do in your heart it's the word of God. 
and we're gonna take it as a gift from God. That's why we preach the word here on Sunday mornings and we don't preach anything else. It's not like some new psychological fad that we wanna talk about. It's not what's in the news and let's talk about that. It's not, hey, let's, uh, let's just tell a bunch of funny stories that everybody likes. We're gonna go to the word of God week in and week out. We're gonna dig into it and we're going to feed on it because it is what nourishes us, Amen. So that's what we're here for. I needed to hear you say amen before we dig into the passage. Um, So God's word's good for you. There's another side of the street here. Satan is the father of lies. And believing his lies can be absolutely devastating to us. Where God wants to use scripture to convict us to direct us, to teach us, to help us grow, Satan's lies are meant to trip us up and tear us down and destroy us. And the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin in our lives in order to lead us to repentance and freedom. But Satan is gonna try to use false guilt in our lives to keep us from turning to God, to to make us believe we cannot be forgiven, Um, to make us think we are broken beyond repair and that our sin is unforgivable and, and his goal is to keep us in bondage. So on the one hand, God gives us his word to set us free and Satan gives us his lies to bind us up. And so there's a difference between the conviction of the Holy Spirit, which should always be a welcome thing in our lives, and the condemnation of Satan, which draws us away from God. If the Spirit is convicting you in an area where repentance is needed, praise God, it's a gift from him, follow his lead. But if the enemy is trying to condemn you for something that you've already repented of, that is not from God. That's not the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That is false guilt because God's conviction is always aimed at drawing us back to him and this false guilt that Satan wants to throw on us once we've already repented, once we've already confessed, is he wants us to feel that we still have the weight of our sin and we want to stay away from God because it's just too uncomfortable to be near him. And if I can be a a voice of encouragement to any of us, I want to say, if God is calling you to repent of anything, trust him. But if you are already walking in repentance, but you got something in your past that is is just weighing down and he keeps whispering in your ear, you could never be forgiven and God's, God's not covered that, it's a lie from the pit of hell and you need to tell Satan where to get off. And that's what we're gonna talk about today. With all that in mind, let's join the crowd now in Matthew chapter five. As they gather on this hillside to hear Jesus preach what will turn out to be the greatest sermon of all time. And we're gonna pick it up in Matthew chapter five and verse 27. Jesus speaking, he says this, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you tremble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for the whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. We live in a society that is designed to take advantage of the sin of lust. 
Our culture's designed for that. It's estimated that the pornography industry is a $100 billion a year industry. And that's a big number and it's hard to sort of figure out, well, what does that really mean? Um, that doesn't take into account, that's just the direct financial impact. Doesn't take into account the loss of productivity. Doesn't take into account the cost of divorces. It doesn't take into account the psychological damage that is done and the way that God drives wedges, or that, that Satan drives wedges in marriages through this sin. Online pornography, this blew my mind, online pornography attracts more eyes each day than Amazon, Netflix, and Twitter combined. Our society is designed to take advantage of the sin of lust. And it's not just an internet issue. Virtually all of mainstream entertainment um, happily accepts and promotes the idea that biblical sexual morality is just a, an old idea from the past, should be cast away. Such an old-fashioned idea uh, as one man being faithful to one woman for life is laughed at and, and treated as unrealistic at best and, and stifling and impossible at worst. That's what the world says. But here's the thing. Jesus created us. And he didn't just create us, he designed us. That is to say that his creation of every human being was very intentional with purposes in mind, right? And so he designed us and he loves us and he designed us so that we would thrive. And he says something very different on this subject than what we hear the world screaming in our ears from every direction. Now remember, the theme that Jesus is exploring here in the Sermon on the Mount is the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart, right? He keeps trying to get us to realize the problem is in the heart. He's already addressed the devastating impact of anger and bitterness and hatred and how those things lead to things like murder. And now he's addressing the horrific problem of lust and the sins that it can lead to. And he, and he uses, a, a, frankly, an easy example, a, a rather universally relatable example of a man who, who lusts sexually after a woman who is not his wife. But let me also say that sexual lust is not the only kind of lust that ruins lives. And, and this topic is speaking about adultery. It's talking about sexual infidelity in our marriages. It's talking about the lust that leads to that. But you guys, lust is when we crave anything that God has not said is for us. And so uh, that could be a lust for power. How many lives have been destroyed because of people's lust for power? All you have to do is watch how our political system works and you see people who are driven by a lust for power and the damage that that does. There, there's lust for wealth and people will make incredible compromises in order to gain more wealth because they long for it and they think it's somehow gonna fix everything. Some people lust after fame. Some people just lust after comfort and a life of ease. Some people lust after adventure and people are willing to throw away all kinds of good things in order to go after these things that they crave but God hasn't given to them. And, and we don't all lust after the same things, but we all deal with the problem of lust. 
And again, let's remember what we saw last week from uh, James chapter 1, verse 14. He says, each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. That's the nature of sin. In fact, verse 15 goes on and says, then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is accomplished, brings forth death. It's this chain reaction that begins in our hearts. So he says, if there's a chain reaction that ends all the way over here in death, what if we were to attack the problem over here in lust? What if we could stop the issue in the heart? What if we could heal the human heart, set people free from the lust that drives us to sin, which ends up bringing about death? And Jesus says, I'm trying to solve the big problems of the world by addressing the hearts of men and women. And there's a problem of lust in our hearts. So this is not just a warning to like young men and teenage boys with hormones coursing through their veins. Um, This is a warning to all of us. Jesus is describing the impact of lust and his example of lust is sexual lust. And, And it's yet another example of one of those quote unquote hidden sins. It happens in the heart But one of the issues with hidden sins is they don't stay hidden forever. And they always lead to action. What is happening in our hearts ultimately works its way out in our daily life. And those actions can reap horrible consequences. So if your particular type of lust doesn't fall into the category of sexual lust, please do not close your ears to this sermon and think, boy, I hope so-and-so is listening. Because the truth of the matter is, all of us deal with this temptation in our hearts, and God is trying to stop us from going down a path that leads to destruction by addressing the issue in our hearts first and foremost. So just substitute your own particular area of temptation and apply the principles in the same way. But Jesus is talking about sexual lust and sexual immorality in his example. And these are topics that we just don't talk about in church. In fact, you don't talk about this in polite society. These are not the kind of conversations that you say, hey, a long time they'll see, how's it going? Isn't this a great party? By the way, how's your lust life? Right? We, we don't have those conversations, and we certainly don't have those conversations around the coffee bar at church. And our preachers don't talk about it. The, the church is so underinformed on a biblical view of sexuality because we take one of two extremes. Either we make fun of it and treat it as a, a, a cheap laugh, or we're so prudish and uptight about it that we dare not speak about it. And I'm gonna just be honest, I'm critiquing myself and my fellow pastors here. I'm gonna just be honest, it is hard to talk about this topic. Um, You're in a room of some people who are married, some people who are single. Some men, some women. uh, Some people who are dealing with this sin directly in their lives right now, other people who are not. There's often children, young teenagers in the room, we have to be very, very thoughtful and very, very careful and very, very respectful about the way we talk about this. And because of that, most of us just skip these verses and we don't talk about it. And so we're all sort of inundated with the world's messages about sex, 
but we don't hear God's message about sex. And so we as Christians are about as messed up as anybody on this topic. And so we're gonna let Jesus talk to us about it. My thought was, if Jesus is willing to talk about it, I guess I could talk about it. And, and so that's what we're gonna do. Okay, we've established that sexual sin is pervasive on our society, but the question is, why? Why is pornography a hundred billion dollar industry? Why are we so drawn to anything that has to do with sex, and particularly illicit sex? Pictures and, and movies and internet sites and, and humor and stand-up comedy and all of that stuff just built around this because it's such an enticing subject. I am convinced the reason that this is such a big deal is because we were designed by God as sexual beings and sex was given to us as a gift. Wow, you just heard a preacher say that sex is a gift. Sex is a good thing. Uh, and, and the fact that none of you said hallelujah really concerns me. <laughs> guys, guys, it's a gift from God. He designed us as sexual beings and somehow some of us have become so uptight because of the perversion of our sexuality and the issues of our lust and the, and the scar tissue that we bear that we just want to stuff this idea and think, well, you know, spiritual life and sex have nothing to do with one another. And God says, no, 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 you don't understand how I made you. It's a gift. It's a blessing. As human beings, we are made in the image of God and because of that means we were created for intimacy. And within God's design, sex and intimacy should be a package deal that come together. I'll share a little background information. I do a ton of premarital counseling. Couples are getting married in six months or a year and they come to me and say, hey, would you do our wedding? And I always say, I would consider doing your wedding after we do months and months and months of premarital counseling. And so we, we meet weekly or bi-weekly and get together. We talk about all kinds of stuff. And almost always, I will give a couple an assignment very early on where I will give them a worksheet and, and they have to list some things. And I'll say, list 10 things you expect from marriage. And they write their list and they bring it back and I take that list and make a copy for my file and we talk about what's on the list and as we go down, we hear things like, you know, uh, friendship and uh, partnership and et cetera, et cetera. And as we go down the list, uh, somewhere near the bottom, almost always, is the word intimacy. And I always ask the question, I see you wrote intimacy. Did you mean sex? <laughs> and they usually blush and they go, well, Yeah. And I go, okay, do you understand that intimacy and sex can be very closely related, but they are not the same thing? And, and it's, intimacy has become the Christian code word for sex. But guys, intimacy and sex are not the same thing. And you know this. There is plenty of sex without, in, without intimacy. Ever hear of the prostitution industry? There's plenty of sex without intimacy, and there is plenty of intimacy without sex. God designed it so that our need for intimacy would be at least partially met in the sexual lives of our marriages. 
And so what's supposed to happen is that when, when two people are married and committed and in love with each other and devoted to one another and have, are living in a covenant relationship with one another, one of the ways that God takes two and makes them one, this goes all the way back to Genesis, is that it says, and the man and his wife came together and the two became one flesh. And there's this intimacy, there's this oneness that is created by that. And intimacy leads to better sex. And better sex leads to more intimacy. And that's not an accident. God created it that way so that within marriage we're always growing in our intimacy with one another. It's a good thing, it's a gift from God, we're designed for it. But here's the thing, sex and intimacy are not the same thing. And, and when, we, when we engage in casual sexual relationships outside of marriage, um, they never fulfill that need for intimacy. They always leave us shrugging our shoulders. And, and anybody who's dabbled in casual sex can tell you this. Of course, they won't because we don't talk about these things. But the truth is just the opposite. It leaves us wounded leaves us confused, it leaves us untrusting, it leaves us distant. It drives a wedge between people rather than promoting the oneness that God created for. What was designed to be a unifying act between married partners where they give to each other is turned into a selfish pursuit where people, uh, uh, single people try to get from one another. And we have an entire hookup culture in our society today where single people are just seeing what they can get from one another. And I have so much respect and admiration for a young or not so young single Christians who are continually looking for relationships that are not based on this hookup culture. And if that's you, you go. Congratulations. But it's difficult. And it's difficult because of the lust in our hearts. The consequences of our perversion of God's plan can be devastating. But though the Pharisees condemned the act of adultery, they turned a blind eye to the problem of lust. Now, let me be clear. There is nothing sinful about sexual desire. It is a gift from God. And, and it was meant to enrich our lives. It was meant to promote unity in our marriages and intimacy. Um, one of the, frankly, huge challenges that we face as our culture evolves, there's nothing right or wrong about this cultural evolution, but it does create a new problem. Uh, once upon a time, not so long ago, the average people were getting married around 17 or 18 years old, nationwide. That people got married around 17 or 18 years old, 100 years ago, maybe 110 years ago, because my statistics get old, 110 years ago, the study was done, and it, it said that the average onset of female puberty 110 years ago was 16 and a half, and the average age of marriage was 17. That's, that's not a long time to, to, to struggle with temptation. Today, the average onset of female puberty is 10 and a half, and the average age of marriage is almost 30. That's a long time to deal with it. And so, so it's a huge 
challenge that we face in our society today. We were made as sexual beings. As soon as we become sexually mature people, we have desires. What are we supposed to do with that? I'm not going to go into a seminar on what we're supposed to do with our sexuality today, but that is a topic that is worth looking into scripturally. Today, I want us to think about what's causing the problems that can be so devastating for us. If you're married, you should know that sexual desire is designed to draw you closer to your spouse. And that closeness or intimacy creates a oneness that draws you back together sexually and the cycle uh, is a positive cycle. That's God's design. And that's what can happen when a love and commitment and humility and mutual care drive our sexuality. But when our sexuality is driven by lust, the result is things like selfishness, abuse, divisiveness, adultery, human trafficking. We have been sold a lie. We've been taught to believe that sex is just a biological function. It's just a grown-up form of recreation. And by divorcing sexual intimacy from committed, loving marriage, we've ended up cheapening both. And we're paying a huge price. We've been told that sex has nothing to do with God. In fact, we've been led to believe that our sex life and our religious lives should be at opposite ends of the spectrum and the two should never meet. And that's why sex is such a taboo topic in church and why some of you are getting more and more uncomfortable the longer I talk today. (laughs) But God, interestingly, does not shy away from this in his word. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and and. Yeah, I feel like we should be scheduling a seminar here. I don't have time to do all of that. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, let's pick it up in verse 13. Listen to how Paul talks about this. 1 Corinthians 6, 13. He says, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. But God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality. That word means sexual immorality. But for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. The body is for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body in the context of sexuality. Now, God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. When people talk about, oh, your body is just a shell that you live in. It's not really who you are. It has nothing to do with who you are. They're ignoring the fact that God created us as human beings with a human body, with a sexual identity, with a human gender, and that he is going to raise up those bodies into glorified bodies, and they're going to be ours forever. And so we can't separate ourselves from our bodies. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man, sexually immoral man, sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. 
There was a common heresy in the first century that taught that the body was meaningless, everything physical was meaningless, only that which is spiritual mattered. So you could be uh, 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 connected to God spiritually and do whatever you wanted to do with your body, the two were completely separate. And by the way, that same heresy is taught throughout our culture and our society and on every college campus in America just about today. And it just takes on different examples. But the heresy is the same, that your body is not who you are. And that's why, and some of us I know shake our heads, and I I say this with compassion and respect to people who are dealing with um, uh, identity issues, but some of us shake our heads and go, guys, it's it's sort of obvious, you're either male or you're female, why are people so confused about this? People are so confused about this because we have bought the lie that how we feel determines what is true rather than what is true guiding what we feel and that leads us to this problem where we have a separation of our spirit spiritual realm and our bodies and God says your body belongs to God therefore glorify God with your body and for that reason it's acceptable to say that um, in our culture it's acceptable to say that a person's body has nothing to do with their gender after all, what a person is on the outside is a physical and therefore it's, it's not real. What's real is what's on the inside. But here in 1 Corinthians, he's telling us that we belong to God. We are not our own. We've been bought with a price and we are to glorify God with our bodies in the context of our sexuality. And adultery does not glorify God. In fact, adultery robs us of intimacy. Adultery crushes our spirits. Adultery stands in the way of our most important relationships. And here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is telling us that lust is at the core of sexual sin. So it's not enough to try really, really, really hard to stay away from pornography. It's not enough to to try really, really hard to be faithful in our marriages. It's not enough to try really, really hard to follow the rules of sexual conduct that we agreed to when we stood um, at the altar with our spouse. The problem is in the heart. The problem is lust. And it's a serious problem. So serious that Jesus makes it clear with his gruesome examples how important it is that we win this battle with lust. Let's get back to Matthew 5. Look at the examples he gives in these two verses. Verse 29. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out. Throw it from you, for it's better for you to lose one of your body parts than for the whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now let's be clear. Jesus is not encouraging self-mutilation. He is simply giving a graphic, gruesome example to give us an idea of how serious this is. There should be nothing that we're not willing to do in order to stop the problem, but here's the thing, right? Let's just say you gotta take some drastic steps because of your sexual lust. You may need to get rid of your computer and your internet connection. But did anybody ever struggle with lust before there was an internet You you may have to change what you let your eyes dwell on. But even blind people deal with lust. David, 
David, we saw this in, this in the story of David's life. David went up on the roof, looked through a window, saw a woman bathing, and so far he had done absolutely nothing sinful. He happened to be on his, um, on his balcony. He happened to look out. He happened to see through a window where there was a woman bathing. At this point, he had a choice. Wow, let me go over here. Or, wow. He chose the second one. It's not what your eye catches, it's what your mind dwells upon. That we do have a choice about. And, and, and when David was convicted of his sin, this is what I was talking about earlier, about not to be afraid of the Holy Spirit's conviction. When David was convicted of his sin by God, in Psalm 51, he asked God to create in him a clean heart. He knew what he needed. He needed a heart transplant. He needed a heart that was oriented toward God. He needed an inward transformation. Just not going up on his roof anymore was not going to solve the problem because he was the problem. Now, don't swing the pendulum too far. Of course we should take practical steps to avoid the traps of lust. You know, don't tell me you're trying not to lust, but you're at the strip club three nights a week. Um, we, you, you may have to really stop clicking on certain sites. You might have to download um, some software onto your computer like Covenant Eyes or one of those ministries that reports to somebody else who's an accountability partner everything that you click on. There might be practical steps you have to take. That is just common sense. If your lust is for money, you, you might wanna cancel your subscription to Fortune Magazine. You might want to get rid of the stock exchange app on your phone. If you lust after power, I suggest you start serving people and expect nothing in return. If you lust for the approval of others, you might need to stay off of Instagram. All of that is common sense. But if you don't deal with the heart, all of that is temporary. My friends, Jesus is using several different examples to teach us one simple lesson. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. Jesus says that everyone who looks at a woman lustfully is committing heart adultery. That, and, that, and that term in the Greek is, is more helpful in the Greek because we see the term, it says, looks at a woman, and the, the, the Greek tr translation would say, who stares longingly at a woman. It's a very different thing. Very different thing to catch a glance or to stare longingly. Those are two very different things. And, and he's talking about where you let your thoughts go. Every man in this room knows that there is no way to avoid seeing female beauty. It's all around us and it's not a bad thing. But sometimes it comes in forms designed to make us lust on billboards and websites and women who intentionally dress provocatively. Um, but the problem is not in seeing such things. The problem is when you start to stare and let it gain a foothold in your life. That's what David did with Bathsheba and that's where he lost the battle. In Philippians 4, Paul tells us we have a choice about where our minds go. We don't always have a choice about what comes into our eyes. We don't always have a choice about what comes into our ears. We don't always have a choice about who we bump into and the things that we have to deal with, but we always have a choice about what we do with our mind. Go to Philippians chapter four, and we'll, we'll finish with this and wrap it up. 
Philippians chapter four, uh, verse eight. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Or some of your translations will say, let your mind dwell on these things or fix your mind on these things. In other words, we have a choice what we dwell on. We have a choice what we give access to our minds and our hearts. There are millions of destructive things that we can let our minds dwell on. But there are also countless, wonderful, glorious, God-given blessings that we could choose to dwell on as well. The battle is won when we apply the words of the famous old hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You can't be dwelling on him and dwelling on sin at the same time. Why don't we make it our habit to turn our eyes upon Jesus? Why don't we make it our habit to let our hearts be enraptured by him And we will find ourselves being transformed by God from the inside out. And that will make all the difference. Let's stand and pray together. God, as we think about a topic like this that is um, very real in all of our lives in one way or another, we realize that uh, we often stand at a crossroads, choices between that which is honoring and pleasing to you and choices of that which would feed our fleshly desires. And God, each one of us at times takes a wrong turn. And so I ask God that you would help us to come to you and rush into your open arms even when we're caught up in sin. Even when the enemy is whispering in our ear to stay away from you, that we're not welcome with you because we're too dirty to be in your presence, God, I pray that we would hear the voice of Jesus through the Holy Spirit telling us, come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. God, I pray you would help us to come to you and that you'd change us. You'd give us that new heart. You'd give us that renewed perspective. You would give us that mind that is dwelling upon the things that are good and true and honorable. Father, we want to win these battles with a fleshly temptation. We ask God that you would help us so to do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.